trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. One of the great things about George Mason University is its proximity to Washington, D.C., and that allows students to be on the doorstep of the national dialogue and the opportunities that being in D.C. brings. And many times that dialogue happens literally right here on our campus. And that is why I am so excited to sit down today with Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush, who is not only the first black woman to represent Missouri's first congressional district, but this summer she is co-teaching a graduate level course here at George Mason University and the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. Congresswoman Bush's path to Washington, D.C. was actually one of activism. A registered nurse, a teacher, and a pastor, she helped organize a Black Lives Matter protest following the 2014 police shooting of Michael Brown and is co-founder of the Truth Telling Project, which advocates for a just, equitable, and sustainable society free of state-sanctioned violence and systemic racism. She gained national attention as a congresswoman when she slept on the Capitol steps to fight for an extension of the eviction moratorium. That is a fight close to her heart because years earlier, she became unhoused and spent months living in a car with her partner and two small children. Her story is truly one of determination and inspiration. And I welcome you, Corey Bush, to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Well, first and foremost, I want to thank you for engaging our students this year and spending some time with them. I am always ecstatic when people who are literally writing our history, literally causing our history, get to spend time directly with those who are learning from it. Thank you. It's still kind of hard to hear when people talk about making history, because while you're doing the work, it doesn't feel like or you don't think you're making history. You don't wake up saying, hey, I'm going to go make history today. So that's encouraging. Thank you. Now, it's interesting that you wind up in this place because at one point in time, you swore you'd never get into politics, right? Your father, Errol Bush, was an alderman in Northwoods, Missouri and a former mayor. And you told him you would never run for office. Is that right? I did. I did. When my father won his first seat, ran and won his first seat when I was about 10 years old. And he was alderman for several years. Then he ran for mayor in that same community and then and became the mayor. Now he's back to being an alderman. But I saw my dad give his heart and soul to the community. Each person, one by one, each resident, I saw him do go above and beyond every single day. But there was so much corruption and greed and deceit and lies that were always just around him. I just wondered, like, why do you give so much 
when all you get back are just these attacks, like the criticisms. And I just didn't understand why someone would willingly sign up to do that. And I remember one day even asking him, like, do they pay you for this? You know, because we, you know, we didn't have a lot. We were okay, but we just didn't have a lot. And so I was wondering, like, what are you getting from this, you know, as a kid? And so I just decided, and I told him, you know, I'll never run for office, never. You know, I helped him on his campaigns, but that was it. So how surprised are you to see yourself in this position that you're in today? Super. (laughs) I'm really surprised because I went back on my never, never. Um, Let me say this. The day before I made the decision, the yes decision to run for office the first time, you could not have told me that I would be asked to run or run. And so like, it was just not a, it was not a dream of mine. It was not something that I had pondered over days before or the year before, nothing. It was zero, zero in my head. And then one day that all changed. Let's delve into that a little bit. What told you that it was time? Was it the Michael Brown shooting or had you been at least toying with the idea before that? Never toyed with the idea. It was just not something that I wanted to do. I thought my dad is just such an amazing person. And I felt like that was his role. I was working as a nurse. I was pastoring at the time, taking care of my two kids. And I was working every day for a community-based mental health clinic. I was um, the nursing supervisor there and then ended up becoming the director of that clinic. So for me, I was doing the work, working with our unhoused community members, helping to fight human trafficking. You know, I was doing a lot, fighting substance use issues. And then Michael Brown was killed. And so when 18-year-old Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and the community protested, um, those protests lasted lasted more than 400 days, um, even after the cameras left. And so for me, after those 400 days, there was another activist out of Charleston that asked me to run for U.S. Senate. And I had no, why would I want to do that? But that person had someone else come back to me the next day and ask me again to run. And when he came back, when those community leaders came back to me and asked me to run, I knew I had to say yes. A yes just rose up in my spirit. So it rose up in your spirit. It did rose up in my spirit. That's, that's what I, <laughs> I to say, my, my mind was saying, no, no, I'm on the phone. My mind was saying no, but here it was just like, yes. <laughs> Well, that is amazing. What, what was your father's reaction? He had heard you when you said you would never, right? Yes. What, yes. what, was, what was his reaction to it? My dad was not, he was not thrilled. He was not thrilled at all because he knew he had been around politics for so long. He knew what it takes to run. He knew what it takes to, you know, he knew the attacks and all of that. And he didn't want me to go through it. He felt like I was going to walk myself into pain walk myself into a lot of hurt and he didn't want that for his child you know he was in daddy mode were his predictions true yes was he right in saying oh you just gonna be in a world of hurt well his thing was i was going to be the sacrificial lamb i was going to be the one to take off the darts and the attacks and still not really be able to get anywhere and you know you know of a sacrificial lamb you stood for a sacrificial lamb right absolutely absolutely i did (laughs) whose parent wants to know their kid is to be one and so he wasn't happy he felt like people would ask me to run but they may not be able to fulfill all of the promises that they were making to me to help me to run you know raising the money getting the name recognition and all of that so you had a lot of jobs before 
deciding to be a congresswoman, right? Nurse, pastor, teacher, right? You did all of these things, right? How did that previous life, how did the education, the training, the work, how did that prepare you for what you're doing now? So it's all servanthood and servant leadership. I worked in early childhood for more than 10 years. I went from being a two and three year old preschool teacher to being a pre-K teacher, to being an administrator running and uh, the assistant director of the preschool. And so it was taking care of children. It was taking care of those families. It was those wraparound services, making sure that I knew the signs when a child was being physically abused, that I knew those signs, even if a child never told me and making sure that I got that child to safety. It was making sure that the parents who didn't have money to pay for child care services that week, that we did the work to help to make sure that they were able to send their kids to school. So it was that. And then in my nursing career, it was everything. It was taking care of the person that was in front of me, also taking care of those family members and loved ones that would be the support system. It was also finding money to be able to make sure that my patients had the medications that they needed, even if they were uninsured or underinsured. It was going out into the streets to find my patients that needed their a medicine for mental health to be stable uh, mentally. And so it was all of that. And then, so it was just that servanthood. And then even as a pastor, it was all about our work in the with our church. It wasn't about the four walls. All of our work was out in the street. We came together two hours, twice a week for uh, in service indoors. And after that, everything else was on the street. And then all the jabs and the knocks that you get trying to do those things, especially as a woman. Oh my gosh. So all of that prepared me to be here because it was all about advocacy for each person. I get it. So did those trainings kick in during the Ferguson protest? Absolutely. That's how it started um, in Ferguson. I actually was out there every day, Monday through Friday. So Michael Brown was killed on a Saturday. That Monday, our office, when we got back to work, we worked out sending a mobile, like a, uh, like a mobile response van to the area where he was killed and just serving the community. So by that next day, we were out on the ground and we worked Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 a.m. for the next five weeks doing that work, serving the community on the ground during the protest. And then in the evening, I would stay out there or go home, take care of my kids for about a couple hours and then come right back out and protest all night. And that went on for such a long time. So absolutely, I brought that because I was out there as a nurse. So I was still, I was bandaging people's wounds and chasing people, trying to save them from, you know, see dogs unleashed. There was always someone to help something to give, or I would pray, you know, we would hold the big prayer circle and, you know, so it, it showed itself out there. So let's talk a little bit about Ferguson, right? Because your congressional district actually includes Ferguson, right? Yes. So has there been any change, especially on the ground when it relates to relationships with the public and the police? So some of it has changed simply because leadership has changed. We don't have the same police chief. We've been through a few since the Ferguson uprising. So they have a lot of different leadership. Let me just say that. There's a new mayor. We have a first Black woman mayor in the city of Ferguson. So things are different that way. They've made strides to not only see what works as far as community policing, but to also, they've been open to making sure that there is community input a lot more. I'm not saying it's perfect at any, by, in any stretch of the imagination, but it's better than it was. Also, they have been intentional to try to make uh, sure that that police force is more representative of the community. So yes. if you walked on those streets tomorrow and you ask people, is it different? The answer to that question would be 
I, I think people would say it's better than it was. It's no, not okay. where they want to be, but it's better than it was. Okay. Well, look, that's a win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the part of the problem, though, is we were not only in Ferguson, all around our community. We've been so far away from where we should be. So getting somewhere is great, but there's so much more work to do for us to be in the community where there is people like people walk in dignity, you know, and they walk in equality and equity. This is a good segue because that brings us to the class you're teaching, right? And so the class you're co-teaching is called the Public Pedagogy of Truth and Reparations. So talk to me about what you're teaching in the course and why its principles are so important. So it was important when we talk about the truth and reparations. I'm co-teaching this class with Dr. David Raglan, just thinking about, we started a group called the Truth Telling Project during the Ferguson protests. And we started this because we would be out on the ground during the protests and we would hear mainstream media saying on live television and live broadcasts what is happening on the street during the protests. And it would not be correct. It wouldn't be what was actually happening. But also we saw how Michael Brown was being villainized and his name was being demonized in the media, but his family was saying a completely different thing about him. But we saw that not only with Michael Brown, we saw that with other people who were the loved ones of someone who lost their life, who was killed by a police officer. And so we wanted to open up a space for those loved ones to be able to talk about that loved one. Because what we were seeing is the police would be on television as soon as the shooting happened and would put out a narrative and then would come back later and say, oh, well, yeah, we were wrong. Or, oh, that wasn't exactly true. But empathy was already gone. So we started the Truth Telling Project at that time, but it wasn't truth and reconciliation. And it wasn't reconciliation because there was no... How are we reconciling something that, um, where, where is the forgiveness? Why do we have to forgive when they continue to kill us? So we weren't ready for reconciliation, but this was about truth, people getting their truth out and reparations for us ties right into that because there is harm there that has been done and there is repair that is needed in this country. So for us to be able to tell our truth, we tell our truth and then the repair has to come. So that's what we're teaching in this course. I'm also talking about what actually happened on the ground during Ferguson because there are so many lies, so many myths, so many misconceptions about what actually took place. So we're clearing those things up because that's part of the truth piece. In person or hybrid? It's hybrid. Okay, so some online, some in person. How do you like that? Oh, I like it. I like it because I'm online and I'm in person, depending on the class and the students are too. And let me tell you, the best part of this class for me, I just have to say the best part of this class is we have someone who is virtual, who is currently incarcerated who is able to be as just as much a part of the class as everyone else. And I love that. I wish we could have so many more. See, now you told me something new. I did not know that. Mm-mm. I did not know that. But that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, That yeah, yeah. is amazing. And to be totally honest with you, I meet with my leadership team this week. That's one of the things that we can talk about. Because why can't we then have others do Absolutely. the same thing? The reality is you can either do the time and let the time work you or you can work that time. Right. Yes. I so while that. I'm doing the work in Congress to decarcerate, while we're trying to get that done, our folks that want this education, let's get it to them. That is really cool. So carry me through your thought process. What made you agree? You're a really dizzy person. You got all this great stuff going on. What made you agree to do this? 
I think that anytime we have a ability, if we can make it work, being able to talk about peace, being able to talk about what that looks like, how do we get to peace and what peace actually is, being able to put the truth out there. I spent a lot of time traveling right after the Ferguson uprising, going around to different universities, speaking on Ferguson. So this is an opportunity for me to be able to do that while I am also the representative of that community. I remember back when I was running, I would say that now I will be in the position, if I get elected, I will be in the position to hold those same officers accountable, the officers that not only hurt Michael Brown or other folks, the officers that hurt the protesters, the officers that hurt me, the ones that stumped me and threw me in the air and brutalized me. Like I would be able to now hold them accountable. And so this is another way. And let me say this too. I've met with different groups of students that will come to St. Louis and do a tour as part of their civil rights tour that would travel the country. And one thing that they would say when they would come to Ferguson is I just didn't know this particular class changed. They would tell me this class changed my life. Like I didn't know about racism before. I never had to deal with it. I didn't know about civil rights. I didn't know about this. And they would say, this changed my life. What do you want students to take away from the class? I want them to take away that understanding that truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we talk a lot about what is your truth, this person's truth, and that, that was even brought up in the class. But walking away knowing exactly that it's okay mm-hmm. to be your authentic self pushing for the things that you believe you should push for, even if nobody else rides with you, because that's how we got here. That's why almost eight years later, I'm sitting here in Congress is because I didn't let them push me back when they told me to shut up about the protest. When people told me, you can't say this, you can't do that. I continued on with the truth of what happened. So in the same way, and now I'm in a position to push for those reparations and I'm able to have a bill now that we'll be introducing in the next week or so. On reparations, I'm able to do that because I didn't allow other folks to stop me from speaking my truth and going for what we need. So that's what I hope they take away from this class is to stand up, speak up. You can do it in a particular way if you have the knowledge and if you have that experience to be able to do that. So talk to me about the reparations part. Yes. Right. You hit the truth part of the class. Yes. So talk to me about reparations. Are you talking about reparations in a broad sense? Are you talking about reparations relative to what happened in Ferguson? Can you elaborate on the whole reparations piece? And I'm going to press you here a little bit. I'm just going to press you just a little bit. <laughs> you know, we talk about reparations, but we never really talk about the amount. Right. You feel me on that? So what does it actually mean? So, yes, please. Sure. So this resolution that we are working on, we're working with multiple groups, multiple groups that have been doing the work uh, for reparations in this country for many many decades. So we're not doing this alone. So what this resolution says, first of all, is why is reparations owed to Black people in this country? So this is not about Ferguson. This is about reparations for Black folks in this country. No, I get it. So the conversations have been about, are these reparations for Black folks or are these reparations broadly? Or is this for reparations for people who are the descendants of enslaved Africans in this country? So that's what this resolution is about. It's about who's owed reparations. So who? So who's old? That you will find all of that out when the when we introduce the bill. <laughs> <laughs> you will find out what we came up with. And the thing is, this is our bill. If someone else wants to write a bill that's different, that does some different things, that's fine. This is Congress. Anybody that took the oath can write their own bill. So, but for us, this is this will be our bill. But it talks about the money. 
We have experts that have said it should be the equivalent of 40 acres in a mule, which would come out to, some people have said it's about $250,000 now. Some people have said that it should be cash. It should not be cash. It should be, you know, all of these things. Let me just say for me, this part I can tell you because I've been very public about this. For me, reparations is cash and money into our social programs, making sure that HBCUs are free, making sure that there is money for home ownership, making sure that there is health care, that we fix the climate crisis issues in Black communities, like all of that, all of those things, dealing with poverty, making sure we don't have homelessness in our communities as it relates to Black people. That, to me, is would be reparations. But you'll find out more when this is introduced. And so how are the students reacting to the discussion to reparations. Very engaged, very engaged. And I believe the word is more intrigued by how expansive the voices are and the ideas are, the conversations about what should be and what shouldn't be. And so this has been a very good part of the conversation. Not only that, though, not only the reparations piece, even the truth, just understanding. We had a long conversation about what truth actually is and just how nuanced it is. Um, That's right. Because there's your truth, there's my truth, and it's the truth. Yes. Right? <laughs> there's absolute truth, right? You, you yes. Yes, and and that truth can be affected by where I live, who my parents were, you know, how did I, how I grew up, what is, what, where do I work, what is my environment, what do I watch on television, you know, how do I dress? Like, truth can be affected by so many different things. Since we hitting the hot button topics, let's hit them. You know, another tough conversation that you've been having relates to this whole concept of defunding the police, right? And that phrasing, it has prompted a lot of discussion and hand-wringing across the whole country, right? I mean, even former President Barack Obama in Vox was quoted saying a snappy slogan like, defund the police, risk doing more harm than good. And he went on to be somewhat critical of the statement. But I've heard the other side of that discussion, too. And the other side of that discussion, too, is those resources need to be put towards individuals who can go into those communities and engage, de-escalate, work with some of the mental crises and the mental issues that people are having. But I'm really interested in your discussion relative to this topic. Let me just go back to the snappy slogan piece. It's not a snappy slogan to the people who were actually out there on the ground, day in and day out, risking our lives for people we don't even know. We were shot with rubber bullets. Some folks were chased with dogs. We were tear gassed so many times to where even today, I can barely walk up a flight of steps without needing to take a break because my lungs are so bad from the tear gas. It's not a, a snappy slogan to those who were out there day in and day out with family members who lost someone, or for those of us who were brutalized by police. It's not a snappy slogan. It's not a snappy slogan to this Congresswoman who is the representative for the community who has been number one for police murder in this country for many years. It's not a snappy slogan. What it is, it's a way for us to signal to this country that you must do better, you must do more, and you do it now. And we will stay on your head until you do it. And that's that. And so to say that people won't hear you or you'll lose the big audience, 
audience and all of that. Well, I didn't lose the audience. And I, and I, I hope people get this. People spend so much time talking about the slogan, defund the police. Just do it if you do it. Because they'll say, hey, don't say defund the police because you'll lose people. Don't say defund the police. Just reallocate. Say let's reallocate or let's say uh, shift funds. It's the Mm -hmm. same dang thing. People aren't upset with moving the money. People are upset because these are the words that came out of our movement. That's what they're upset about. People always tell me, just no, 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 say shift. No, 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 say reallocate. So that's one. And two, if you're more upset about words, you're more upset about these three words than you are about the lives that we've lost. And it's evident because in 2021, there were only 15 days that the police did not kill someone. And we're talking about the year after millions marched in the streets for George Floyd, for justice for George Floyd, and justice for Breonna Taylor and so many others. It was the highest year for police murder since police murders have been being recorded. Really? In 2021? 2021. That is amazing. I had no idea about that. Yes. And so they can say what they want about about three words. But you know what? If you care more about three words and you care about those bodies, those dead bodies, then we have a different problem, which we know we have that problem, which is white supremacy that is ingrained in the soul of this country. And that's what I'm fighting every day. So don't get mad about the slogan. Do the actual work. So do shift, redirect, move, whatever word you want to use and put that money into our social programs to make our communities better instead of promoting police officers that have history of misconduct instead of buying bear spray to hurt the community members that live in that community, instead of stockpiling SWAT gear, and instead of buying MRAPs that cost $150,000 to $300,000 each, instead of a militarized police force in the communities which they are supposed to be serving, instead of that, let's make sure we can help our people that are suffering from mental health issues and, and, and having those crises and substance use issues and get our people off the street. No, I get that. I get that. So, you know, what some folk will tell you very clearly is that the reality is when you're in communities, especially given what we've seen happen since we've started to transition out from a pandemic phase to an endemic phase, where you see gun violence increasing, where you see murders increasing in some cities, People in those communities will say, look, we need police, but we don't need police to come in and terrorize us. We need police to help deal with the issues of crime. And so how do you square those two arguments? Because defunding the police does not remove police officers. It doesn't stop police from being able to do their work. What it does, it stops them from putting money into the SWAT gear. It stops them from being able to militarize their police forces. You call 911 because you have an emergency, police officers will still be available the same way they are now. What we're saying is that money that's going to go into militarizing the police Mm -hmm. instead of doing that, because remember, those police forces work for that same community. So why do they need to for your community? If you say we need you to take care of us, but they're saying we want to be militarized against you. So we're saying no, instead of being a militarized police force, because in other countries, they don't have that. Instead of being a militarized police force, take that money and let's put that money into those social programs. But also what we're saying is we want to put money into making sure that folks that are living 
with mental illness issues that if they have a crisis and someone calls 911, instead of sending a police officer to do the work of a mental health expert, we will send a mental health expert. So let's fund those programs, have a mental health expert go out on those calls because it has been hugely successful and it saves lives. But also what it does is it helps the police officers to not end up doing work that they're not qualified or equipped for. You don't have the CPA going out flying planes when we don't have enough folks to fly planes. You don't have the person that does my hair. She'll never show up and end up being the person that is doing traffic stops. If that's the case, then why do police get to do a job that they're not equipped for or qualified for when we have people who went to school to do that work? So we want to fund those programs. It's happening in Miami-Dade. It's happening in Denver. And then Utah has a program that's the CAHOOTS program. These programs work. And even in my city of St. Louis, we have a similar program where just last year, there were 800 calls that the police did not go out on uh, where there was a a social worker or um, some type of uh, provider that went on those calls. And there was no incident of danger. And it saved the police officers 2,000 hours of police time where they were able to concentrate on their actual work. And let me lastly say, One in 16 encounters someone who's in a mental health crisis. If they have an encounter with a police officer, it ends deadly. Wow. You're throwing out some nuggets here today. (laughs) That is an amazing statistic. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I have to imagine that your experience of being evicted and living in a car with your family had a huge impact on how you understand the struggles people face. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? and how it has shaped you today. Before you end up without a home, you don't know that, like you don't think about one day, at least I didn't think about, oh, one day I could live on the street. And so before it happened, I just didn't, I didn't know that I would end up there. And so it was difficult. I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I at least had a car. So me and my kids and my partner at the time, uh, my ex-husband, we Mm -hmm. lived out of a, a Ford Explorer. And my children, they were, we put a, uh, put up the playpen in the back of the Explorer and that's where my kids slept. And our clothes were in trash bags on the middle seat. And that's how we lived. But I felt like if I go into a shelter, I'm taking space from somebody who don't at least have a vehicle. You know, we at least had that. Um, it was tough because where do you use the bathroom? you know, all day, every day. Like, where are you using the bathroom? Where can I dispose of my kids' diapers? Where am I mixing formula? I was mixing formula in a McDonald's bathroom. How do you eat? Because you can't keep anything cold. You got to eat from meal to meal, right? Meal to meal. You know, you had to spend money to do that. Uh, And so it was just tough. People would tell me, oh, go to the food pantry. And I would say, okay, well, where am I keeping this stuff? Where am I going? How am I opening? Do I have, can I plug in something to, you know, to open these cans and all of that? It's a lot more to it than, um, than what people, what people think. And you would, people thought that, well, because you have babies, people will open up their house to you. Not so. People would tell us, yeah, you can come in at night, but you got to be gone by morning. I would iron enough clothes for several days just because I wasn't sure the next time that we'd be able to get into someone's home. And I had to go to work. And, And you had to go to work. 
that's another story in and of itself, right? Because you were working full time, right? Full time. And how could it be that you're working full time, but still not able to make enough money to have a place to live? Working low wage. Yep. And so, and that's a whole separate set of discussion points that I think are significant ones in this country. Yes. So do you have a sense that it's difficult for those in Congress to truly empathize with the kinds of things that so many people struggle with because they have largely been separated from that struggle? I hear all the time some of my fellow Congress members talking about the struggles that they have to face working here because, you know, we have to have two homes. You know, you have a home here and a home in your district. So trying to, and then D.C. is two, three times more to rent a home here than it is in some of our districts. So you don't get help with that. There's no stipend. There's no money for housing out of your pay. I think for folks to truly empathize. I do think that it's hard for some folks here in Congress to truly empathize, even if they've lived a particular struggle, because there's been so much time, they're far from removed from it. But for those that haven't, they can empathize as far as my people in my district send me letters and say these things. And so I want to fight for them. But it's another thing when you have done it and you've been through it yourself. But I'll, and I'll say this, when I was out on the steps of the U.S. Capitol and fighting for the eviction moratorium extension, I remember being on television multiple times and just people being asked to walk through what it was like being unhoused or walk through what it was like being evicted. People will respond back and say, I didn't know that that's what happened when you were evicted. I didn't know that when you when you got evicted that that they charged you all of this extra money on for uh, court fees and attorney fees and all of this on top of what you were supposed to pay. Didn't know that you only get three days to pay or vacate or 10 days. Didn't know like all of these things. And it wasn't until someone spoke it that had walked through it that people were like, oh, I didn't know. So we got to fix those things. Do you find that people are receptive once they get all of this explained? Yeah, receptive, but priorities is the question. What is the priority? Is it still, is it, does this become a priority to you or no? Because that's the difference. So now when you ran against your primary opponent, you were running against a black male. So as a black woman, what were some of the obstacles that you had to face running against a man in a primary? Yeah. So it was, so one thing was the first time that I ran against him in 2018, first people were saying like, you're a black woman. Why would you run against a black man? Like you shouldn't be doing that. So I fought that pretty much the entire race. I'm like, Hey, I don't care what color he is. Is he doing the work for this community? And that was my thing. Don't just have a face or skin color, like have somebody that's actually taking care of the community in the ways that we need to be taken care of. So by the next time I ran, I didn't have to face that as much in the district. But both times I ran against him, I had to deal with, well, I wore braids a lot. Oh, you're so unprofessional. Your braids are unprofessional. Your lips, people will talk about my lips and my hips. Yet there are articles about my hips being too big. And people would talk about me a lot on social media. You don't have the physical size to be in Congress. People, they talked about my education. I would show up for um, like endorsement meetings, like with different clubs or groups or whatever. And there would be me and a bunch of men. And I would be the only person that they would ask, what is your educational background? And I'm looking at the other guys and like, nobody asked them. I would have to show up probably because, of, you know, not only a woman, but a black woman, I had to show up in a full suit. And these guys would show up in a, a shirt and some khakis and they would end up getting more respect than I would. You know, well, it, well, let me no, let me make sure you understand that one. 
Yeah, I'm sitting here as a president of this university, and I've had to deal with that one too. Yeah, I bet you have. No, no I, I you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, you you know, you understand that. That's the unfortunate reality of the truth. But that is definitely how it is. You get get asked it all the time, <laughs> and uh, and even to the point where, in some cases, you'll have people. They know who I am. They know that I'm here. And they will go through, oh, man, I looked at your publication record. I looked at your background. I said, oh, you check that out for everybody? Hey. <laughs> you just check it out for me, right? I get it. I understand that. But I'm like, yeah, go ahead and look at it. You should read some of them while you're at it. It is a part of the process. Yes. You, you know, now the context is a little different. But let me ask you this. So what did you think about the way in which Justice Contagi uh, Brown Jackson was treated during her confirmation hearings uh, for the Supreme Court? It was disgusting. Personally, I expected it, but it's really horrible that she had to sit there and endure that. So much of that was just simply because of she's a Black woman and folks did not want her in that seat. She has the background. She has the qualifications. She has the love for just people. She has the heart of the servant. And she was fully qualified for this seat, but instead they wanted to talk about things that had nothing to do with her record, her qualifications. What were your emotions when it was all said and done and she was confirmed? Oh my gosh, it was a lot. I remember I had to sit with it for a minute because I just, it was bittersweet because it was like, like you happy. I was so just elated. I was overjoyed, but I was thinking also like I'm overjoyed, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm so happy, like to the point of tears, but it's 2022 and I'm at the point of tears because she's being confirmed. She was confirmed for the Supreme Court when it should have been like, yay, happy for her because she made it versus it being that she's the first one. And so I had to sit with that. But I'm telling you, I was so happy to see it. And I'm glad that I was here at this time to be able to witness it. You actually, you were a part of that history, right? Absolutely. That's right. Amazing. Amazing. So one of the more powerful messages you sent as a congresswoman was sleeping on the steps. I mentioned it earlier, sleeping on the Capitol steps to extend the eviction ban during COVID. So what was that like? The moment before I decided to stay out on those steps in protest of the expiring of that ev- the uh, eviction moratorium, I didn't know I was going to do it. There was no plan. Like, really? You just said, I'm staying here. I'm sleeping. Yeah. When they gaveled us out, Congress is adjourned. Okay, we're going home, going on vacation. People hopping on flights. Representative Ocasio-Cortez and I were looking at each other like, what? Like, we can't leave. We actually tried to stop it. Let me just start with that. When we heard it was happening, we uh-huh. took off running down the, <laughs> down the hallway right here in the Capitol, and we broke through the doors. We didn't break the doors, but we, you know. We no, I, I get you. I get you. And we tried to stop it, but we were too late. So I just decided like, hey, I'm just going to stay here and let people know we're staying here and let's see. I'm a politivist and I'm the politician and the activist. I decided to pull from my activist side and let's just stay here. I didn't know how long we would stay. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know rules of the house. I, I didn't know any of that. I just said, let's just stay. And it was hard because first of all, I didn't know I I didn't know what I was doing, but I just knew I had to do it. That was your spirit. 
It was my spirit. And during the day, it was hot. It was August. So it was burning up hot during the day, but it was cold at night. And then on top of that, it rained. I think the first and second night or something like that, it rained. So one thing about it is we were out there and we couldn't, you, there was no place to get covered. So the blankets that we had and big sleeping bags that we had because we were cold, now we're getting rained on. So we're getting rained on the bags, the pillows, everything. Is oh, man. How do you get warm? How do you dry off? And where right. do you go? Nowhere. But people needed to know that that's what happens to our people who are unhoused every single day. And if you're saying it's okay to risk the lives, risk putting 11 million people out on the streets on top of the 500,000 or so that we already have in this country that sleep on the streets at night. To add that to who we already have, we haven't fixed the problem that we need to fix already. You know, there was no way. So that needed to happen. But let me say this. I was delirious because I hadn't slept. I really wasn't eating. I was hot. Then I was cold. I could not think straight. I was doing interviews and could barely breathe. I was stumbling. Like it was really tough those few days. But the message was powerful and you are commended for it. Thank you. So I heard you say before something to the extent uh, and, I, and I'll read you the quote here. Uh, we have to take the time to look at each other and just add mercy. This country is such a merciless place. It's unbelievable to me how we expect peace and harmony and justice and liberty for certain people but others don't get the same respect. Yeah. So how do we bridge the gap? Well, we have to call a thing a thing first. You have to call a thing a thing and you have to keep calling that thing a thing until people understand it and are pissed off enough to be able to fix it. So that's why you hear me, I, I say white supremacy all the time and I call it out where it is, where it's showing its head or hiding up under a blanket. I call it out and I also talk about how to make this an anti-racist country. I, I've been talking about that for a couple of years now because if we're not doing the work, it's not okay anymore to just not be racist. Oh, I'm not a racist, oh, I'm not. What does that mean? You don't hang people from, black people from trees? What does it mean that you're not a racist? No, are you doing the anti-racism work? Are you doing that work to dismantle systems that oppress black people in this country, that oppress brown people in this country, that oppress our indigenous communities, that oppress people who are disabled or LGBTQIA in this country? Are you doing that work? Are you fighting misogyny? Are you fighting patriarchal ideals of this country? Are you doing that work? We have some who are, but as a whole, we don't give mercy we don't give mercy. We are so quick to push people aside or those people who are pushed aside. We're talking about people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. We're talking about people who are living with low wealth, whether uh, we're talking about right now overturning Roe v. Wade and who that affects first. Let me just say this, let me throw that out there. Overturning Roe v. Wade affects Black women first because Black women, the leading cause of death for Black women back in, before 1973 when Roe v. Wade became law, it was the sepsis from abortions that were unsafe. So do we want to go back there where we're putting Black women in, and not just Black, everybody in this position? So that's why I say it's merciless because it is a way to continue on with the status quo white supremacy. Because you, if, you, if you think about what just happened, we lost 19 kids and two adults. We lost 10 people in Buffalo 
Why? We have to think about it um, because white supremacy, and I know the one, the one young man was not white, but it's white supremacy that is driving all of these things. So our students, I can see now that they are getting a tremendous perspective from you coming in and sitting down and talking with them and engaging them with this level of passion and emotion. And I want to tell you, I appreciate it. We pride ourselves here, George Mason, on giving our students all sides of an issue, helping them to learn, right? Just like you come in and you have the, a, a perspective and you're given that, they may hear from somebody else who has the exact opposite perspective, but that is what we do. And it helps people round out their individual truth by understanding the history of what's happening around them and having people who are making history come to them and engage with them. And that is what you are doing. We are tremendously grateful. I really appreciate the time you're spending with them and the engagement. And I will tell you, this is not going to fall on fallow ground. You're going to look up one day, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and one of those young, young people are going to come to you and say, I remember when. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have, have done something great in their lives. And you're going to say, mm, I had a part in that. Yeah. So I just want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, it gives me goosebumps because I have seen the outcome on the other end and I know it's coming. Wow. Thank you so much for saying that. And uh, thank you for your work and all that you are doing because it makes a difference. It absolutely makes a difference. I've seen it. And also to those that are able to look to you. Some people say I've never even had a Black man as a teacher, let alone as someone who is the administrator, someone who is the president. Um, That is huge. And so thank you for being that example. Last thing before we go. So what do you tell students about how they can make a difference? Be you and show up authentically you. There's no age. There's no activist guru that goes around and anoints you. You know, you've done 126 hours. You are now an activist. So whatever it is, whether it's activism, whether it's um, in education, whether it's no matter what it is, whatever that thing is, it's okay that it's different. You step up and you be you because somebody needs you. And when we say, oh, we don't have this, sometimes it's because the person that holds that vision won't step forward. So we need you to step forward and be you, whatever that thing is, push forward, hold on tight get the knowledge, get the understanding, get the experience and bring that forward to the world, whatever the world looks like for you, whether it's your home, your network, your community or the country or the world, bring it forward. And just remember that you are enough. You are valued. You are worthy. And I love you. That's what I tell them. (laughs) Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Congresswoman Cori Bush, thank you so much for your time and for being a part of the Mason Nation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored. Thank you. Well, that will wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.